Welcome to the Ancient Way. I'm James. I'm Marlia. Dr. Judd joins us yet again. We're going to do the round of applause right in that. Right. I think this could be sort of a Halloween episode. Yes. And Dr. Judd, we've been kind of on a, uh, what is it called? Snowball of some of our episodes in the past, like a handful of them have just vanished into thin air, just disappeared. We have this routine, you know, when we upload them and some of them are just gone. It's weird. But we're trying to make up so that we can reach episode 100 by uh, hopefully by Christmas time and have like a party or so, you know, some get some cake or something like that, cake and ice cream. Well, we we could really make people mad and do an episode on Christmas and it's okay to celebrate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That is, you know what? Let's get into that. Christmas tree and Nimrod, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm down. I'm down to go into that. That is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, Alexander Hislop's Two Babylons is the source material for a lot of that, and it's just complete bunk. Really? (laughs) Absolutely. It's totally ahistorical. Oh, my gosh. That's hysterical. I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating. We seriously should do a Christmas episode, and instead of our uh, theme song, let's put a Christmas jingle in there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my no. lantern. You will bring no. out the Christ- you'll bring out the Christmas trolls or as I like to call them the Bah Humbuggers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That made me really want to sing that word. I don't know yeah, what. That uh, was just like Yes. Yeah, one of the best Christmas movies is Batman Returns. Speaking Absolutely. of Absolutely. Absolutely. There is like a biblical mirror to it because it's almost like the penguin wants to kill the firstborn children mm-hmm. of Gotham. So there's like some biblical, you know, I, I wow. think it, it's a kind of a connection there. Certainly. <laughs> Anyways, I always like those, the first two specifically, mm-hmm. Batman and Batman Returns. It's fascinating. Yeah, we're all trying to forget the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. Still. <laughs> yeah. I, but, I did. But I went. At least Christopher Nolan did us right with the Dark Knight trilogy. He did. He did. That was great. And, uh, you know, the that Joel Schumacher, I went back and watched both of them a couple of months ago because I've not touched them since, you know, 1998 mm-hmm. when they came out. And I was mm-hmm. like, let me give these a shot. Let me just give them a shot. It's just not good. Mm-mm. Not good. Terrible. Hyper and just, wow. But the, yeah. apparently... Supposedly, there's a Schumacher cut for uh, Batman Forever, where it kind of delves into more of the psychology of it, and it supposedly deters away from some of the just craziness and the silliness, the campiness. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. I, it's funny that Joel, Joel Schumacher, um, he can definitely do the dark stuff. Uh, yeah. You know, directed Lost Boys. He, it's not that he couldn't handle that. I, I don't know what he was thinking, um, trying to pay homage to the 1960s series or something. I don't know. But anyway. Yeah, after they came, made a comeback and did away with that and got into the darker stuff, mm. I think a lot of it was toy sales, merchandise, it seems. Yeah. Yep. But yeah. anyways, anyways <laughs> Batman, <laughs> tangent, Batman Returns is a Christmas movie. Very tangent, yeah. be the theme song coming out. Yeah, and... Pee Wee Herman, 
was the penguin's dad in the movie. That's right. That's right. So, Paul Rubens. Uh-huh. Easter egg. Yeah. Easter egg there. Anyways, we said welcome to the ancient way already. How are we going to segue into demons from that? Well, I think there's, I think you can get in there, you know, Batman, you know, okay. The dark side. So the last time we met, we touched on this subject so briefly, and we always end up on like kind of the epicness and the heroism of Jesus and how he fronts the demonic. He gets like right up in front of him and flexes in the scriptures and stuff. And so. Dr. Judge, you brought up the festival of the Lupercalia. Am I pronouncing that right? Mm-hmm. It's like yes. this big pagan festival. Could you go into a little bit of like maybe detail what that festival is and what they do? Sure. The Lupercalia, um, kind of as the name suggests, is a, a fertility festival centered around flocks of, of sheep and goat. Um uh, specifically for keeping all, keeping away the wolf, you know, the wolves and predators, things like that. That's where the, the looper, uh, mm. part of, part of the celebration. Uh, but because the, the God of shepherds and goaters was Pan, this was a, a, the basically Pan's festival. Um, and it certainly has roots in, in Greek culture. Uh, but the the Lupercalia was an ensconcement on the Roman calendar, uh, and it occurred on February the fifteenth. Um, and the overarching theme, of course, is fertility. It's to to ensure the fertility of not only the flocks but also the fertility of humans as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are some rather bizarre public spectacles that were involved uh, in the public sphere of religion uh, in, in order to gain the favor of Pan so that, uh, uh, you know, flocks would be fertile, people would be fertile. Um, it was a body kind of a festival, um, very much in keeping with the nature of Pan himself, who was... Um, I suppose the G-rated way to say it would be promiscuous. Uh, yeah. Uh, cavalier, maybe, might be another word. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, w- one of the public rights, and keep in mind that there would have been, you know, all kinds of, of communal meals and votive offerings at shrines and things like that that were being given. Um, but one of the public spectacles was this, um, march of the Luperci. And Luperci were these, uh, young men who donned goat skins, basically, and they would take tongs of leather. And the women of the town would gather on the main thoroughfare, the Cardo Maximus, and would bare their thighs. And these guys would march by and slap these leather on their thighs and this was supposed to ensure fertility uh, shut up yeah but there were all these uh, almost a kind of carnival uh, uh, Mardi Gras sort of of atmosphere and in fact carnival and both Mardi Gras take place in February and they're they're undoubtedly um, residues of the old Lupercalia festival the Mm. same because even in even in uh, Roman Catholic and medieval Europe, early modern Europe, the the um, 
Carnival Festival um, would well, it it was a pretty body, almost pornographic display of excess. Yeah. Um, wow. parade, parades with you know phallic symbols and uh, you know all kinds of, of debaucherous uh, hmm. imagery were, were just paraded down the main streets. Um, so it was it was kind of a time of excess, and like I say, Carnival and Mardi Gras, which is a derivation of, of that, hmm. all all trace back to the pan's rights during the Lupercalia. And there've wow. been a number of, number of papers written over the years. I'm thinking mainly of, of people like TJ Cornell and historians like TP Wiseman, if people want to go read for themselves have written, written on the subject. And it's, it's been determined that pan is, is the, the God that's being honored during the Lupercal. There's a kind of footnote to the Lupercal festival. Um, in addition to keeping off, keeping predators away and trying to placate Pan uh, for that purpose, uh, it wasn't just to keep the wolves away, but uh, the Romans in particular believed in these sort of werewolf creatures uh, that the rats were designed to try and keep away as well. Hmm. Um, so there's all kinds of high strangeness that's associated with um, the Lupercalia. And I, I've come to determine in my own research that the Lupercalia, because it was a festival of Pan, and uh, because Pan was the, the main patron deity at Panaeus, Caesarea Philippi, and so much of what Jesus did, as you were alluding to earlier, you know, was, was flexing and, and giving notice to the demonic realm, which is exactly what happens, mm-hmm. you know, when Jesus visits Caesarea Philippi that it makes sense that a further affront to the god of that area, Pan or, or Bennu or, or Ikes or Azazel or whatever name or face you want to attach to it, mm-hmm. it would make sense in the, the Greco-Roman milieu of that city that he would, he would arrive. And we've known for quite some time that Jesus and his disciples were, were most likely there um, during the winter uh, before his death. And, I would argue that it's the the late part of winter um, and that February the 15th would be a, a, a direct affront. Um, yeah. And so it, it, that makes sense to me. It also makes sense that there's a, there's another festival called the Parentalia uh, that's taking place. All of these would have of course been celebrated um, at Panaeus at Caesarea Philippi. But the, uh, the Parentalia was a festival that honored dead ancestors. Hmm. And um, if Jesus arrives on February the 15th, uh, or does it not, he could have arrived earlier, but when, if, if he's making this homily where he makes all these statements about the founding of the church and that the gates of hell will not withstand against it, uh, it makes sense that that would be February the 15th. They could have they could have arrived earlier, and I think that they probably did within the scope of the parentalia because it just it makes it that much more, um, that much more not just articulated, but it's it's poignant as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the we, we get an interesting clue from uh, Luke that there are a number of days. Um, between the time that he's in Caesarea Philippi proper and he goes up to the mountain, uh, to Mount Hermon for the transfiguration event. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 
I've recently hypothesized that that is the ending that coincides with the ending of Parentalia. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about the timing is that the last day of the uh, the Parentalia uh, was a was a right involved rights for placating the most um, the most malevolent and and boisterous of those uh, ancestor dead dead ancestor spirits hmm. um, and so it, it again it makes sense that Jesus would you know at the time that's going on as an, another slap in the face of the demonic but transfiguration is taking place yeah uh, what that he would bring reason. people that they would assume are dead ancestors you mean like Moses and Enoch how interesting in yeah, front of that exactly Exactly. Interesting. Uh, plus, you're in the land. You're literally in the land of the dead. You're in the land of the Rephaim. So, yeah. the Rephaim, who were the, the denizens of the underworld, the dead ancestor kings, the Rabba kings, yeah. the Rabba of the the Mesopotamian Absu, and the Rapa of the uh, Ugaritic underworld. So, um, there's, a, there's give... a lot of layers here, but it's it's there's a lot in terms of sacred geography that's taking place here, but it's sacred timing as well. The timing is as important yeah. as the place. Yeah. I mean, everything he does has perfect timing, so yeah. this would not be. It's like, do you think he's going to show up after the festival? Yeah. No or way. Like, that yeah. is saying Ecclesiastes, everything has an appointed time. Yeah. And of course, you know, he would want to crash the party right in the middle of it. It's totally. Does, yeah. He's a good about crashing yeah. a party. Even in the middle of like the Pharisees and stuff like that. Just yeah, like rolling up in there. Hey, if you could, just for our listeners, some people who may not have like the Unseen Realm context, could you go into the Rephaim, like kind of pinpoint yeah. more of that? Well, the the Rephaim are articulated in, in portions of, of the Torah and other parts of the Old Testament um, as one of the overarching tribes of giants. In the Levant. Um, what's interesting about their name, and I think that they're probably they're probably the the earliest of the post flood giants. Um, in other words, these are the the po- like the early Neolithic uh, proto civilization builders, basically. And a lot of these these guys would have ended up as kings, you know, of a lot of the early city states, these despotic tyrants that that ruled them. Um, and in Mesopotamian mythology, they became um, the Rabbah, uh, these, uh, uh, you know, spirits of the underworld, mm-hmm. um, almost almost like the, um, almost like Tolkien's Nazgul, you know, mm-hmm. the, the ring race, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, al- I'm almost sure that that's where Tolkien originally got the inspiration. Because the in in the Lord of the Rings, of course, the these were nine kings of men mm-hmm. who were who were subjugated uh, by Sauron, and they became these these preternatural you know servants of his. And yeah. so, in the same way, the 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 spirits of these Nephilim or, or Rephaim in this case, the uh, which literally translates to the the wraiths or dead ones. Hmm. Or these denizens of the the, the abyss, they're, they're demonic spirits. Yeah. Um, 
So that, in a nutshell, that's really, when we talk about Rifheim, certainly they existed in physical form, um, as in the case of Og, uh, yeah. and a number of other notable giants in the Levant. Um, but uh, once they expired, they're, they became a particular species of, of demon, much like the Nephilim in the pre-flood world. Uh, their spirits became the unclean spirits of the, the demons. Yeah. Do you think that that's kind of, those were more like the powers in the principalities that Paul talks about? Like you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Do you think it was I, from them I think... r- ruling as kings on the earth that when they died? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do as I say, not as I do. Are we that generation? Or are we doing and working on ourselves just as much as we work on the technology that we crave, artificial intelligence, and the concerns, I would say, were pretty valid. But the interesting thing about that is, is it valid because that's how we see ourselves? Are we, are we looking at them, but then really seeing us? That's certain that uh, keeping in mind that Paul, you know, would have been abundantly familiar with a lot of this, this literature mm-hmm. and those traditions. Um, certainly that's got to be on his mind when, when he's, when he's writing that, but he's also probably thinking about um, the audience that he's writing to at Ephesus. You know, the, these people would have, um, you know, the big temple, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world at the time, was the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. And, um, you know, this would have been, although there were other temples and shrines to other Greco Roman gods. Um, this would have been like the overarching image. And so the, those, those nascent church communities in, uh, Anatolia and ancient Asia modern, um, certainly had no, no shortage of, of Greco Roman public paganism, you know, around to, to, to identify that. And because they would have been heirs, at least to a certain degree, um, uh, of some Jewish tradition, they were likely familiar with these traditions of the Rephaim. Obviously, the scriptures that they were using were the Old Testament, likely the Septuagint, uh, and so they're they're definitely going to be familiar with them through the the kind of Hellenized Jewish lens of the the Septuagint. But I, I think, yeah, I don't think you could get too far away from that kind of taxonomy uh, when considering what nuances Paul is choosing to use, what idioms he's choosing to use and talking about, you know, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against these powers, principalities Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Yeah. What I think is really interesting about it too. And we talked about this in our last episode. It seems like even with the principalities and powers, everything boils down to agreement, what you're Mm -hmm. in agreement with. So like these principalities, if (laughs) They're in the position they're in because somebody's in agreement with them and allowing it. Mm-hmm. And even something you've said on a podcast somewhere at some point was even like, you hear about the uh, the watchers mm-hmm. coming down, mating with the sons of men or the daughters of men, that kind of thing. But then there's like 
territory. And it's like you, these humans would give their daughters away in marriage to these things and it would allow them that jurisdiction. Mm. So many people see it. And even I've seen it as like this forceful kind of thing, but it's like, it, it's, it's almost like you come into a covenant with them. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's an agreement and a decision, but it, it boils down to what we're talking about even now, like trauma. Mm-hmm. You get a door kicked down and it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to deal with this. Or even the festival. It's like, let's make a deal with Pan to prevent the werewolves from coming in. It's like, mm-hmm. let's agree with evil to prevent evil, but everything boils down to it. And I, th- mm-hmm. I think that's the key to repentance too. Mm-hmm. It's like when you meet the Lord Jesus or you have an interaction with him, it, it presents that, oh, here's an, here's the other agreement mm-hmm. that I can step into. Precisely. But even the principalities and stuff like that, even over cities and regions and stuff, it's like there's a, there's crews of people that kind of believe in the same thing or the same idea has those people captive mm-hmm. and they agree with it. Mm-hmm. Really well, I mean, you don't have to look much farther than contemporary American society to see that yeah. at work. That's right. Um, how yeah. many, how many tacitly, you know, agree under the guise of tolerance and acceptance. Some of the complete, you know, absurd absurdity that goes yeah. on. That's not, not just absurd on a logical basis, but it's absurd because it, flies in the face of everything that God told us was right and wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, let's wear the mask of what, it, what is it like? Uh, acceptance. Mm-hmm. Let's wear the mask of goodness, you know? Yeah. But it's completely yeah opposite. We have a, uh, we have a mascot here in our hometown, our city here. And I think it's something similar. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but it's the, spirit of progress and there was a statue that was donated like years ago and there's like a painting of this woman and it's basically a spirit of economy and like wealth that kind of thing which Mm -hmm. i I would say is a thing here Mm -hmm. but some of the people that have encountered and some of the you know the things here it's almost like there's an agreement with it's all about economy and it's all about money let's worship Mm -hmm. that and make that our focus and our goal and you see it play out in the economy here in the city and mm-hmm. you know all these different areas of it mm-hmm. which you know i think there's an aspect of progress if you seek the lord in it seek the kingdom first all those things will be added unto you but instead mm-hmm. even like witchcraft we're seeking the creation in a sense mm-hmm. but i think well, that's kind of Sorry, what were you saying, John? I was just going to say, like, going back to the mountain, literally, like, Jesus put on display, like, the living of Enoch and, well, Enoch, Elijah and Moses, right? When they were actually, the culture was worshiping the dead. And it's like, no, I'm the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And it's like the contrast of things, which I feel like is the major deal all throughout scripture is like, look at the contrast. Mm -hmm. It's like, y'all see him as evil. You see him as the one of the dead. Yeah. But like he is the God of the living. And and we've talked about that too. Yeah. We don't make agreements with mm-hmm. anything that is not of life. And well, you know, and you know, that's, that's echoed that sentiments echoed, not only in the new Testament about, you know, what does, what would the living have to say to the dead or, um, you know, like in Hebrews, it's when a man wants to die then to face the judgment. And then you go to the, Proscriptions against um, necromancy in the Old Testament. There's a reason 
why Yahweh is telling the Hebrews not to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. Because these entities in particular, although not not confined to uh, the Rephaim, were notorious because this was where they dwelled was in this, you know, clearly there was a place for um, under the old covenant, there was a place for the human dead um, as a kind of interim. And then you had these other spirits uh, in another place that were awaiting uh, judgment, if you will. Um, now this of course is, is usually she- shield, and you mm-hmm. get the sense that there are different, you know, compartments to shield. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's there's a reason that you have such heavy prescription against them. And so it's less about contacting the human dead than it is about the Rephaim mm-hmm. who would use that and continue to use it today mm-hmm. uh, by masquerading as your dead loved one or, yeah. you know, whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there are, well, Suffice to say, there are, there are lots of reasons that throw this into stark contrast, as you were pointing out a moment ago, about about you know the living God. God is the living God, um, and and Satan is he's the god of, of death and a particular kind of dead, an active mm. dead. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, the, and this is timely too, because of this time of the year when yeah. we've got all kinds of imagery of ghosts and, you know, there are probably going to be people behind closed doors that are playing with Ouija boards for the first time at Halloween parties and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And this is just, this is a, a dangerous gambit. Yeah. Um, because how many, how many experiences do we have recorded, you know, where people are, are maybe not even just with, you know, a, a Ouija board, but, you know, some other type of scrying device mm-hmm. where this, these things go horribly awry. Um, yeah. So something to keep in mind, certainly it's timely, certainly for this time of year, I think. Can you go into a little bit of, um, I mean, we kind of touched on it with the Rephaim or whatever, but, um, mm-hmm kind of demons and do you think that um Hmm. can you go can you you know i think there's like a bunch of i would say a variety of demons Mm -hmm. there's not just like they're not all of one category i don't think that they Hmm. operate the same they're not they're definitely not unified because i believe they live in confusion and chaos because god is pretty clear that he's not the god of confusion yeah but um what are your thoughts on that can you yeah expand on any of that i think over the last 10 or 15 years in biblical studies we've we've sort of gotten closer to the mark and better understanding that there is a diverse taxonomy of demons from the highest of the fallen elohim down to the lowliest unclean spirit Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just more complex than, you know, angels and demons. Um, oh, yeah. it, it's now that's not to say that there are clear markers of who's on whose side, mm-hmm. but the, you know, we're learning more about not, not just the denizens of, 
of Satan, but also we're learning more about the divine council. We're learning more about the, mm-hmm. the, you know, diverse taxonomy and this side of heaven. We may not, you know, we may not learn all of it. Uh, it's an, it's an ongoing revelatory kind of a thing, but mm-hmm. uh, to your point, yeah, there, there have to be, and this isn't altogether obscured in scripture. Um, Lots of your audience are probably familiar with the Divine Council worldview to begin with, the mm-hmm. Deuteronomy 32 kind of stuff, um, the gods of the nations. And uh, you also bring up a good point about, um, you know, it's not altogether, although they may, they all, these gods of the nations disagree, are in a dis- obvious disagreement with Yahweh. Uh, they're, they're in a, a kind of a long-standing cosmic coup, if you will. They're out of favor, certainly. Um, most of them, um, are, are many of them are, are have been relegated to Tartarus already, but we get the sense that some of them are still very active uh, in the world today. Um, and their ambitions may, you know, they they probably have no no problem. Um, you know, there's no there's no loyalty amongst thieves. I guess would be the best way yeah. to say it. Definitely not. Like they'll, they'll throw you under the bus. They'll, yeah. they'll throw they'll throw each other under the bus. Yeah, uh, yeah. When it comes, that's just the kind of ambitions that that drive them, and that's the same is probably true for the rank and file uh, of the rest of of the demonic world. Um, so, mm. yeah, I, I think that they work in concert when they're compelled to and when they're not, they serve their own natures and ambitions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing you said earlier about the Raphaim and like the prescriptions against necromancy, I guess is, and we've talked about this too, even from experiences, but like sometimes there are ghost stories around where we're from mm. and you see a ghost. And I've, I mean, I've seen one before and it looks like the lady that's associated with the the grave site over here. And I'm like, Oh, interesting. But then it's like, I don't know if that was that lady. I wonder if the collective belief or legend of an area or a story gives a demonic entity, a green light to embody that story and almost like masquerade is, yeah, I'm this old lady. Cause they or, agree. Hey, I'm your, I'm your dead grandfather. They agree that that's probably well, it's a like story. an open door. Cause you, you loan your belief to it uh-huh. in a sense. Well, but- it works both ways. That is certainly a likely impossible scenario, but as part of their their inheritance from mm-hmm. the the watchers and the and older generations of giants, they're also culture manipulated. So mm-hmm. they they can very well be the and often are the sources for these kinds of stories. Mm. Oh yeah. Makes sense. You said that, and I instantly thought that they'll, you can see how the demonic will take on a culture and then the, it like infiltrates itself into the culture. So then people have to agree to the demonic mm-hmm. about like, hey, this is now the culture. Like these are just supposed to be the social norms. Mm-hmm. That's how it is. And try and pull well, us into agreement with that. Yeah. I just hadn't they've, seen it in that, they've in really that done light it. where it's so strategic. Mm-hmm. Well, they, and that's what they've been doing from the beginning. Um, yeah. If you if you look at the earliest civilizations, both the, 
the early Neolithic and also the pre-flood stuff, the basic model is an inversion of of heaven, whereas mm -hmm. God is the God is the good, just, uh, perfect ruler. Um, the rulers of these most ancient and and late prehistoric cities were all despotic and tyrannical. Mm -hmm. Where do you think they learned? Where do you think they learned that? Yeah. They, weren't learning, they weren't learning it from Yahweh. They were learning it from mm -hmm. these fallen Elohim, um, and that's the kind of that cultural engineering takes place, um, you know, almost with the advent of, of human civilization. Yeah, I think that speaks to the variety we were talking about earlier too. The variety of demons and the forms they take and stuff. There is that mm -hmm. slow culture sneaky slow burn kind of thing kind of creeping into society but then there is the trauma mm -hmm. of just busting down the door the forcefulness mm -hmm. of it and maybe that speaks to the varying natures of these things you know so well and the various kinds of uh you know abilities that mm -hmm. even that is is reflected not just in scripture but it's reflected in world mythology too yeah, uh, because the the gods and demigods and heroes, chimera and lesser creatures, they all they all have these different personalities and different different um, you know habits and in some cases different weapons, different strategy, yeah. different mindsets. So all of that is reflected in in human mythology as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. So can we jump into goddess worship? We certainly can. I mean, if it's about, you know, I was just thinking like instantly I was like, well, culture. Well, mm -hmm. goddess worship, it ended up being very cultural and it mm -hmm. became kind of like mainstream, if you will. Yeah. Um, can you kind of go into some of that? Sure. Well, the the way that, uh, of course, my, my good friend and colleague, Doug Van Dorn, and I had several conversations about this before we did our, our last Blurry Creatures episode. Um, you sure y'all check that one out? Yes. It's just a side note. Yeah. yeah. Blurry yeah. Creatures is a gold mine. Really it is. is. Yep. But uh, we were, hey, we got to talking one day about, because we're working on the Serpent Mound book uh, together. And we got to talking about um, the possibility of, well, if there, I mean, if there are male angels, are there female angels? If 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 this is a, you know, the we usually associate the as above, so below, uh, mm -hmm. creative, mm -hmm. like ritual magic, but that's actually again, that's a perversion of of gods. You know, that's concept that that, that was first gods, the as above, as as he's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your you know, kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth yeah. as it is in heaven. That's exactly right. Um, and so, it, you know, if that's true, then there there have to be certain analogs in heaven. Um, and so that leaves the possibility open. Well, maybe there are female angels. And certainly uh, in the case of, of fallen Elohim, uh, if we're to look at the pantheons of world mythology, there are certainly many female uh, deities that existed. Um, Doug brought up a really good point about uh, uh, Plato talks about in, in Critias and the the uh, 
the section where he's talking about Atlantis, you know, he says that uh, Plato relates that um, the uh, the Greek um, region, the region of Greek-speaking peoples, Greek culture was was under the purview of Hephaestus and Athena, and um, the more you read into this particular passage, and even some of Hesiod's work about the eight, the different ages of men, um, it's it's pretty clear that um, Plato, by way of his his forebear Solon, who he references um, in in Timaeus and Critias, probably had access to. Um, the uh, at least the Torah, because a lot of what what he's talking about here is divine counsel sort of stuff. And of course, we know that there's a long-standing influence on Greek culture from the Levant. There have been several periods of what scholars call Orientalizing. Um, so it's not outside the realm of possibility that that that's the case. Be that as it may, um, the same question can be applied all throughout the, you know, the, the taxonomy of, of the demonic realm from the, the fallen Elohim all the way down to, to demons mm-hmm. and everything in between. In other words, you know, there were, the same applies to giants, you know, mm-hmm. clearly at some point there were female giants yeah, uh, or you wouldn't have a continuation of, of, the entire line. Now, that's mm-hmm. not to say that there wasn't intermarriage between humans. I think that that, that did happen. Um, but it just, it stands to reason that that would be the case. Again, using, noting that there were, there's an order in creation that's reflective of the higher order in heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those concepts being corrupted uh, within the demonic group, within demonic strategies. It would totally make sense, though, why in Proverbs, it's so intense. To me, instantly, I was like, oh, yeah, that's why Proverbs wisdom was described as a female. female yeah. It's so, it was like, hey, this is the contrast of the female origin. Like, right. well, wisdom and, and being, this is true. In that context, um, that's a, that's an aspect of personality. You know, mm-hmm. why the feminine... Uh, genders use those words that feminine gender um but the um the possibility and i think i think it's a worthwhile conversation to have um, you know as as to whether you know if there were female angels um because that again i i and Doug was Doug was the same way. I can't really get past that as above, so below. You know, as it is in heaven, it is mm-hmm. on earth. Um, r- rationale that's applied so, you know, thoroughly throughout the scriptures uh, that that that's not the case. That that would be the case. Um, and certainly, we know that that there were corrupted ideas of femininity uh, even amongst the ancient Hebrews uh, that. Um, that worshipped not just Canaanite goddesses once they were exposed to them, 
but began making statuary of Yahweh with Asherah consorts. We find a lot mm-hmm. of this stuff. This is like Tel Dan, um, where there were apostate Hebrews. Um, so clearly, the idea was not lost on the on the audience for a lot of these uh, Old Testament books, in particular, uh, that there was, you know, that there there were female fault what they would have considered fallen Elohim from their own culture, the Hebrew. But once they were uh, corrupted by the, you know, the Phoenicians and the Canaanites and the other, other peoples in the Levant, um, it just sort of blurs the line, so to speak. Um, but as Doug and I were talking about, about doing this show, you know, it, it, it occurred to me that this was also a really pertinent topic um, because essentially the entire environmental movement today is is a goddess cult. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Yeah. The, because they they even talk about it in their own literature um, and and describe the earth as a living entity, a, a, a god. Uh, in fact, they they give the Earth the old uh, uh, Greek Titanus's name Gaia, which li- quite literally means mm-hmm. the Earth. That's where we get words like geo from. Um, so there's uh, under the auspices of the environmental movement, and this is really by design. It's not, you know, <clears throat> this isn't something that just happened in a bunch of uh, you know. Greenpeace or, 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 you know, tree huggers or whatever, whatever you want to say, they didn't just come up with this idea. This has been in in motion for decades and probably one of the more visible, um, excuse me, one of the more visible, uh, implementations of, of this came in the form of the, uh, one of the the early biodiversity treaties, I think it was in 1991, was the international agreement um, moving people towards uh, well, a lot of the mess that we see today, you know, carbon restrictions and uh, all being sold under the under the auspices of global warming or climate change or whatever. Um, whatever manipulation of language they wanted to use at the time to sell it. Um, But included in that biodiversity treaty was to bring these um, pagan systems that were associated with nature much to the fore. And so there's a, there's almost a, a a coinciding with um, the emergence of, of neo-paganism because a lot of these, these ideas about environmentalism go back to, the middle part of the the 20th century as they pertain to this biodiversity. Uh, And so it's not uh, the, the preponderance of that that we see today, um, not just neo-paganism, but, but all kinds of occult practices that are accepted um, fall under the, uh, they fall under the, the the kind of uh, affirmation that this biodiversity treaty uh, gives to them that a mm. number basically most of the developed nations in the world um, including the United States signed 
And there have been, of course, updated versions of that and amendments to it since then uh, that have a direct bearing on what's happening now. And so Mm. an interesting question about all of this is, who is this goddess? Because there are goddesses, but the, the idea of a Gaia is kind of an all-encompassing goddess. And I have ideas about who that might be. I think she's worn many, many faces. You want um, to spit, the, spit some thoughts? More details? Yeah, that's where I'm headed. With oh, this. sorry. That's I was so okay. excited. I was like on edge. I was like, okay, I'm in it. Okay, yeah. That's what I'm saying. She's worn many, many faces. Probably, probably since it, at least our first contact with angels to begin with, um, mm-hmm. because you have the um, the sacred feminine represented uh, in late Paleolithic Europe and the old world and parts of Asia in the form of this little statue called the Venus of Villendorf. And um, these little statuettes are found, like I say, all over the old world uh, mm. in, in pretty much the same form. Uh, they show a, a, a female figure that is faceless, um, that is, is clearly uh, with child. You know, she has a, a distended belly and larger mm. breasts. Um, and so that idea, um, and the oldest of these date back to, to between 30,000 and 20,000 B.C., Wow. So it's re- relatively late, you know, in the human occupation uh, of the world, but uh, it may give us some clues as to the earliest interactions that humans had between, uh, uh, you know, between humans and these fallen Elohim. Mm. And so this idea, now it's a dichotomy. There's also the sacred masculine, uh, which is usually a more aggressive, often warlike or, or, uh, associated with hunting that kind of thing but even that is not a universal fit sometimes those roles are reversed because there are plenty of goddesses uh, one of the identities of, of this goddess that i'm about to talk about is one of them um in later millennia uh you had the the queen of heaven as she's often referred to um and a lot of ancient near eastern um literature the the goddess inanna who shows up as as ishtar and other places was a, a war goddess that really the war goddess she was a a, a mother goddess and um, she was also the goddess of, of promiscuity and sexual rights which of course were part and parcel with a lot of the uh, rights of these these public spectacles and temples in the ancient near east Mm-hmm. Um, all of them had temple prostitutes, both male and female. Um, but the um, one of the in- interesting things about the Queen of Heaven is that is that she's got some uh, almost kind of, of trans transgender features, mm-hmm. as bordering on androgyny. Um, and I'm trying to remember the name of the, of the writer that really brought a lot of these to the fore. Um, I'll probably remember it after, after the interview, yeah. but anyway, I do remember that, that he said, uh, somebody asked him, well, what would it look if, look like if this goddess came back? And he said, well, look around you. Yeah. This is pretty much what it would look like. You know, you've got a, a minority 
extreme minority of the population. Um, certain, that's come into agreement with it. That's come into agreement, and now they're now they're forcing it, you know, down the rest of society's throat. Mm-hmm. Uh, saying that tolerance is not enough; you have to accept it and embrace it. Um, but the the Inanna, the uh, she's she has her variants in other cultures. Um, art, uh, not really must, but Aphrodite, and. Mm-hmm. and in Greek mythology, Aphrodite is usually Aphrodite and Venus, and in Roman mythology, are often thought of the, the thought of as the goddess of love. You know, the Venus on the half shell, which could not be farther from the truth, because because they're the, all of these iterations that are they're the goddess of, of promiscuity, um, uh, sometimes associated with death, even. Hmm. Um, uh, going the other direction, you've got goddesses like Kali in India uh, who, who fit this role uh, uh, quite well. Um, yeah. And even even uh, even looking at the Greek um, uh, Titaness, Gaia, you know, there were these destructive forces at work amongst the Titans as well. Uh, so much so that the Olympians fought a war against them. Yeah. Um, in Greek mythology, so um, and she shows up in um, the New Testament in a number of places, notably uh, as um, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. Mm. No um, way. So yeah, this this is um, this is Inanna. Uh, Interesting. So. Yeah, if you want to, if you want a picture of what it would look like if her rights were returning, um, it would probably look a lot like what's going on in the West in general, in America in particular, right mm-hmm. now. Um, did she go away for a while? I don't, I don't know. What's interesting though is that um, if she did return, I would, I would hypothesize that it was, it was made possible at least in part by the Babylon work that was undertaken by the late Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard. Mm-hmm. Parsons, of course, was the, the founder of what became the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and he, he and, and um, L. Ron Hubbard were both devotees of Alistair Scientology. Well, oh. L. Ron Hubbard created Scientology, which is mm-hmm. basically repackaged Thelema, but they were, they were followers of Alistair Crowley. Interesting. That feels and right. Jack Parsons. Something like that. Yeah. Jack Parsons was also a devotee of the god Pan. He wrote hymns to Pan, would pray to Pan. Wow. Uh, every time he had a rocket launch, um, he didn't refer to his, his jet fuels, rocket fuels, as fuel. He called them magical elixirs. At any rate, huh. um, Jack Parsons... Um, and L. Ron Hubbard undertake this this rite, which undoubtedly included uh, sex magic, because Thelma is riddled with, with all kinds of sex magic. Mm-hmm. Um, that was with, with the purpose of bringing in uh, this this destructive goddess spirit, um, huh. well, the, the the queen of heaven, and. It's interesting that so many so many things are happening in that window of time, from 1947 to 1948. Not only mm-hmm. the Babylon, 
but you've got the rediscovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, yeah. uh, Boswell incident, uh, Israel becomes a nation the next year. Um, so it's, it's a creaky and loud turning of a page of history in my estimation. Yeah. Uh, the first that feels like a door slamming open to be on. Yeah, open door. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's yeah. a cool, interesting thing too, is like, even with the earth being, cons- you know, considered a, a woman or a goddess, I think that's another tactic or strategy of like, let's attribute this to a goddess. But really, I mean, like all of creation is groaning as if birth pains waiting for sons of God to be revealed. I think it probably collectively, I mean, you look at plants, it's like a living being. Maybe the earth is this living being, but it's just waiting for us to step into our roles, Mm. you know, uh, as a new creation. But it's once again, it's like, oh, here's an opportunity to flip that and let's make that something and divert their attention into this is a goddess, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Exactly. Um, And that, that, you know, the writers of the New Testament letters, you know, we're constantly telling churches about, you know, why, why are you, why are you worshiping creation? You know, yeah. You should be worshiping the, the creator. Yeah. Um, Worship the creator and wake up to who you are. And maybe that will. And we should qualify, you know, what we're saying here. We're not, this isn't an, an exercise in misogyny. These right. are, these are questions that, that need to be asked that don't often get asked of mm. the un- unseen realm as we come to call it in the way yeah. in the way Dr. Heiser. Um, but they're, but they're, they're important questions because there are theological ramifications for those questions. Yeah. And, and they're questions, they're questions that are pertinent because they bear on what's going on in society uh, today. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's hard for a lot of churches and, and, and even preachers and teachers in churches to kind of steer away from the, you know, Jesus is a life coach, you know, model because yeah. so much of the, you know, Bible study and, and Sunday school literature is sort of written like that. You know, yeah. it's, mm-hmm. it's like how to have a good marriage, how to raise your kids. Exactly. That. All, of that, all of that stuff is and important. Not to be a bad person. Sure. But, but we sort of reduce, we sort of reduce faith to a, a kind of qualified deism. Yeah. You know, that, that's all we're sort of, you know, concerned about, yeah. um, which just speaks to, you know, the infiltration of the church yeah. by these ideas. I mean, if you want to see witchcraft at work, that's it right there. Yeah. I, I, saw, I saw a great meme the other day about, uh, you know, in one frame, it said what most people think witchcraft looks like. And it had the typical, you know, ritual setting with people in mm-hmm. robes. And while that's true, that kind of stuff yeah. does happen. The other frame said, and this is what it actually looks like. And it had all the stuff about, you know, the news media shaping the narrative. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, definitely. Because spellcraft, is... spellcraft is a perversion of, of prayer. Yeah. It's a perversion of the use of words that God ordained. Um, and what's happening now is you have a, a clearly quantifiable manipulation of words and language. And if that's not witchcraft, yep. speaking as somebody who has a teaching field in that, yeah. I don't know. What it is. Yeah, it is on a, on a mass scale. 
it's like a giant spell. We've, we talked about that too. And it's like another thing too is like, Hey, this one bugs me, but it's like with that, the media and stuff like that, it's a projection. It's like, Hey, here's a situation. Here's your two options. Pick one. And it forces people out of even being love and present where you're at, you know, with the people around you being Jesus in this area to like, Oh, the movement is out there. Right. I've got to pick an option. Is it red or blue? Is it vaccine? Is it not? And it's like, wait a minute. They're, they're, they're giving you a problem and then they're giving you two solutions. Kind of like pan and the werewolves. Here's a problem. Mm-hmm. Hey, here's a solution. It's like darkness and darkness cycle. Mm-hmm. Same with medical and, you know, the food industry, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It does. It feels like a mass spell. And it's like, here's your problems, but we're going to provide you the solutions as well. And it keeps you in a hamster wheel. Yeah. And I think outside of the present, you know, of like, Hey, you know what? I can live this. I can live as a Christian, a fully functioning and operational and aware and powerful, like Christian new creation here with the, everybody that I encounter, I can have the nature of Jesus here. And that I believe can be a linchpin or a stone, the cornerstone that you pull a pin out of something and it unlocks the world instead of, Hey, you focus up here, do this as like a distraction. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody has this incredible destiny. You know, if you connect to the Lord, we're all made for specific purposes. Um, but yeah, it is, it's this mass witchcraft. It really is. Yeah, very much so. And it's the reason it's so hard to discern for a lot of people is that it's woke. And in some cases, it's very ancient, prehistoric. In fact, it's been woven so much into the fabric of yeah of every, everyday language that some people might not even recognize it as such. And this gets yeah. into a whole other can of worms. It's a, it's a complicated knot of, of, of linguistics in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, which is why I've, I've kind of gone back to a lot of my linguistic training and it's come, it's come in useful in a lot of ways mm-hmm. that I, I had never even predicted, you know, could have predicted that it would have been interesting when I, when I was yeah. sitting in my, my graduate sociolinguistics seminar, I had, I was like, this is interesting. I might use this in the field some, sometime. Yeah. I had, no clue what the Lord was going to use it for. Yeah. Like weaponizing you. Yeah. Like armed. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I've had a, I have a relative. <laughs> this relative had lived so outside, like off, almost off the grid, like no news, not mm-hmm. even church, but was one of the most, when I thought of like Jesus and helping people and not just helping people, but just when I thought of the nature of Jesus, when I wanted to talk about Jesus, I'm like, I'm going to talk to that person. And I hooked this individual's, uh, smart TV up. Mm-hmm. And it seems that in a matter of months, it's access to the world, to what the, to what the media pushes and then mm-hmm. started going to church. And it was like they were intermingled to where, like, what's going on in the nation is crossbred with church. And it totally warped this relative of mine. 
Yeah. Oh yeah. To a toxic point. And I'm, I got to see it and I'm like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's strategic. And it pitted it's, family against family in a very strange way. Yeah. It's insidious. It really is. It's, it is. um, uh, you know, we're, and of course we're, that's why Christians need to stay vigilant is because mm. we're bombarded with it, you know, almost daily. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a good friend of mine, Dr. Greg Reed, wrote a book called The Trojan Church about mm. that very thing, about how these ideas, you know, we were so busy guarding the vanguard of the church that the devil just kind of snuck in from behind. Yeah. All of a sudden we've got, you know, we've got Sophia being revered in certain churches and we've got, you know, yoga being practiced in churches uh -huh. and, um, you know, churches have gone evangelical some evangelical churches have gone woke and the um the uh stuff like the emergent church which is a whole other other you know i watched that and that actually unfold almost in real time um huh. when i was in college i heard sentence and uh man alive it's just it's it's really spectacular and and insidious yeah and and not I don't say this as a, a mark of, of homage, but it's it's disturbingly brilliant. It speaks yeah. to an intelligence far beyond our own, which is all the more reason that we need to be leaning on Jesus every day, seeking yeah. that, that discernment that the study of Scripture and prayer um, can give to a person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's the key to it, is how do you— in a world that, that claims his name and claims his title, how do you represent him accurately? I think that's the key is representing him accurately mm. where you're at. I think it's got to be that. Because, I mean, you know, it's it's kind of when somebody says, oh, what do you believe in? Oh, I'm a Christian. It's <laughs> There's all of these things that come with that, this kind of weight and even shame sometimes. It's like, man, these people mess this up and I got to wear this. But it's like, no, and we've talked about like, no, I'll kind of confidently claim it now. It's like, yeah, I am. Mm -hmm. But even before that, sometimes I'll just demonstrate it and people can talk to me and I can disagree or whatever it is and just be honest. But people, there's a trust mm -hmm. that comes with it. And then when they find out, it's like, oh, oh, he's safe. He's safe to be around or she's safe to be around. Mm -hmm. That's attractive. And that feels right. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the key to it. And talking about it like we're doing. Even because mm -hmm. we'll talk about even exposing some of this stuff. It's like, hey, man, look at the spell that comes on through the through the media and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So. Or look at the octopus. Look at the octopus <laughs> in the room. Goodness. It's the that's old, one. it's a Hail Hydra. Yeah, <laughs> Hail Hydra. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Hey, I, this is a random question. And it really diverts off of everything that y'all have incredibly gone into. Okay. But I've been sitting here thinking about it. Jezebel. Mm -hmm. In terms of a goddess or a spirit, do you think that she represents one? Well, certainly her legacy 
Mm-hmm. Represents it's in Revelation. Deities. He talks about it. Yes, the Jezebel spirit. Um, yeah. 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 You. It's it's sort of hard to to figure out for certain, but you know what we know about Jezebel uh, from the 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 kind of biographical sketches that we have of her in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she was she was a priestess of Baal, mm-hmm. uh, which which meant that you know that included the the rites of Baal's consort, you know, the uh, Asherahs. So. Um, You know, it may be that this is another face of, you know, the, the queen of heaven. Certainly, mm-hmm. um, Asherah would have been an analog of that. And mm-hmm. as a as a priestess of Baal, you know, in a lot of ways, Jezebel represented that. Um, and because she's a cautionary tale, you know, for the rest of, of scripture, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and that Jezebel spirit, that de- divisive and overbearing and uh, uh, whittling away—that's uh, a real thing, you know. You, I mean, I, yeah, you can you can really discern it, you know, and not just—it's some, it's certainly something that's not confined to females, you know. The Jezebel mm-hmm. spirit uh, is active in males as well. Yeah. Uh, and it's been the it's been the ruination of, of churches for millennia. But wouldn't but, that also be kind of what y'all what we were kind of talking about though, is the like Jezebel, like that trans kind of deal, like the mm-hmm. trans spirit, like it could actually morph and maybe Jezebel actually was the origin of the actual spirit was a woman, but has mm-hmm. morphed itself to where it will take on like men. You know, like men will accept that or whatever. It's probably part of the brilliance that's, of that's of that's the... something that's something that was part of the personality of a lot of these goddesses and, and mm. gods for that matter. So much so that by the time, um, you know, we would probably call them, um, you know, transvestites today. Mm-hmm. But that kind of interplay between male and female roles mm-hmm. certainly existed, and it was personified by a number of deities in the ancient world. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me that by the time you get to um, classical antiquity and late antiquity with the emergence of Gnosticism and Gnostic Christianity, um, there's a, a sense of, of the Gnostic Christ being uh, androgynous. And there's yeah, a sense of, of, of the, uh, the a di- dichotomy between the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine. In, the, in Gnosticism, and that's what's so disturbing about mm-hmm. Sophia in churches today. In Gnosticism, the spirit was called Sophia. So that's we're really mm-hmm. seeing a, a a kind of resurgence in Gnostic thought in churches, and they probably don't even think that it's Gnostic thought. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, that. And again, certainly those are those are themes that are being played out in real time right in front of us. Uh, in society today yeah that's interesting okay i have one more dumb question no dumb questions Sorry. just dumb people i'm just kidding Golly, ruthless <laughs> i'm kidding no so going in kind of that vein like baphomet mm-hmm. is baphomet similar to pan then because you know they're the both goat head but baphomet is also androgynous like mm-hmm. 
and does the whole as above, so as below, and kind of does the whole totality of that. But it does have like a goat face. Yes, would that's it, that's the could it also be Pan? Uh, I don't see why not. I mean, Pan is is usually depicted, um, as masculine. But again, that's not to say that there weren't female satyrs, right? Um, so that's uh, that's possible. The Baphomet is kind of an amalgamation, but it, uh, definitely a spirit all into its own. It's interesting that the hmm. Baphomet sigil, the the symbol of, of Satanism and Satanic witchcraft, is bordered by five Hebrew letters, the letters that spell uh, Leviathan. Hmm. The, the wow. Chaos, I didn't chaos, know that. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting because um ltn as it would have been spilled out and transliterating that into english would have been spilled out from the hebrew is the same as btn in phoenician which is bashan or baton the land of the serpent wow which is where fascinating which is where caesarea philippi is where mount Hermon is um so yeah they're there's definitely some in interesting symbolism, but the, the point about this, the Baphomet representation being androgynous, is, that's very much in keeping with what we're talking about. Hmm. Okay, so it wasn't a dumb question or a dumb person. In no that. dumb question. I retract my statement. <laughs> okay. It's your show. You can do that. Well, yeah. I also bleep things out, so. Oh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, we've bleeped probably two words out the whole time. For comic relief. You know, we'll talk about it. If it requires a word, I mean, use it responsibly. Uh, That's so fascinating. I love it that. Is. I, It's so... Two things that I think are incredible. One is how much this stuff is actually fully in our culture. Yeah. And how, like, strategic the enemy has put so many things in. Mm -hmm. and that's, but they're so ancient. Yeah. And brilliant. But it's like, yeah, be as wise, be wise as a serpent. But like what you said, Dr. Judd was, hey, if you want to see some of these spirits and these gods and principalities, yeah, look at the culture. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to people don't have ideas. Ideas have people. And those ideas are those principalities at play. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting one. He's like, yeah, so maybe that's an exercise. Hey, step Very back, much. get out of the news, kind of yeah, step yeah, back yeah. and look at everything. Very much so. Yeah. The. And it's not even just a matter of, uh, um, it's not even just, just a matter of, uh, uh something in, in ideation. It, it's, yeah. We've got statues that are being put up, yep. you know, <laughs> that are representing some of these ancient deities. You know? Yeah, um, that's true. He makes know, me I mean, pumped, to, to, man. To us. To a certain extent, we live with classic the classical le architectural legacy. I mean, a lot of our public buildings are, are Greco-Roman and make, yeah. um, you know, even here in Texas, you go yeah. to you go to almost any small town, and the, the courthouse looks like a, a Greco-Roman temple. That's um, true. Yeah. So we live, with, about that. we live with the classical legacy, but it's it at least the the overtly pagan elements of it are, are becoming less covert 
now. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so getting these statues. I'm thinking about the ones that have been put up in New York. Um, mm. But uh, uh, certainly not limited limited to New York. Yeah. I didn't know they put statues in New York. Mm-hmm. I live under a rock. I do too sometimes. <laughs> but it's cool. A good thing about it, though, is like it's as open as that stuff shows up, it's like. So will the sons of light. So will the sons of light, you know. So will we, you know. And I think that's what this is. Mm-hmm. That's what this is. That's what Blurry Creatures is. All, it's kind of bubbling up to the surface. Mm-hmm. The honesty and the truth and all those things. And so it's exciting to see what is that going to boil down to, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I'm, I'm like kind of thankful to be alive in this totally time. Yeah. It's like, if you're linked up with him and like even reinforcements, like talking to you, this is a joy mm-hmm. to us, but it's like, it's like the reinforcement. It's like, yeah, they, people didn't have this 30 years ago, mm-hmm. this capability that we have. And even this, this level and this knowledge that we all have and share. So, and yet, and yet in some ways, People in bygone generations were more in touch with this than people are now because we have, right? We have, yes, we have more knowledge about it now. We have more ways to access it. But the counterbalance to that is never have you had had such large peoples, large numbers of peoples wanting to be so willfully ignorant of it. Yeah, that's right. Valid. True. Yeah. So it's almost it's it's a little bit of 1984, but it's more like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. You know, whereas Orwell in mm. 1984, his prediction was that people would would overtly censor, you know, overly censor books, and because there were all these yeah. new volumes of like Chaucer and Shakespeare that had been ultra, you know, yeah. pasteurized and and gone through all these censor boards in 1984. Huxley's prediction was that as that people would be so apathetic about it that it wouldn't matter. They wouldn't care Mm -hmm. to look. Yeah. They would be so distracted by everything else, uh, in particular technology doing everything for them and just Mm -hmm. rampant promiscuity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even that, I definitely see that and feel that, yeah, the apathy of it. And I've seen that too, even in young people. It's 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 strange and it's sad. But I it is think sad. It, it, it's part of the reason. Um, as much as I loved elements of teaching in academia, it's part of the yeah. reason that I left is because I had room yeah. pools of students who just did not give give a proverbial flip. Mm-hmm. Wow. And yes, I've noticed I, it, I got, like zombies got, almost. I got tired of, t- of trying to teach people that didn't want to learn. Yeah. Um, I, I've got, I've got all the patience in the world for somebody who wants to learn, but if you're not going to yeah. put forth the effort, you're wasting my time and your time. Yeah. And yeah, yet these for sure. places are still handing out degrees, you know, they, they're <laughs> yeah. turning our colleges and universities into diploma mills. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that where these paths lead, the apathy and the technology, if it's used, if it's misused, we're presented with, like you said, options for agreement. You can agree with this, 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 but it's like, taste that fruit, see where that goes. Mm-hmm. The one thing that will stand up above all else as an option, it's like, you can follow that trail to to the grave. Most mm-hmm. of them lead there anyways. 
But I think people, when you hit rock bottom, a lot of people, it gets to like, what really matters? Totally. And mm -hmm. like I said, the more we do this stuff, we're a viable option. Mm -hmm. Jesus is an option. It's like, taste this fruit and see, you know, it's all available. It's like Solomon. Try mm -hmm. it all. Vanity. But what really matters, it's here too, you know? Mm -hmm. So. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll see you. Yeah. It definitely feels like the tides are turning though. In some in some, in some sense of like yeah. like I'm so glad that we were talking about like all the demonic and stuff because I think I'm all about clearly both of us uh and even you know you too Judd but just our on our show it's like it's the Lord. We are 100% about the Lord. But I love bringing in the context of like hey these things are actually demonic. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. So you can actually be aware of these things and you can start to, to discern for yourself, you know, um, yeah. Of just both of them, you know, just the like, equipping, yeah. Yeah. And test it. Yeah. Well, to I was thinking, out and I was, uh, I was reading yesterday and I had the, I had the empire strikes back soundtrack playing in yep. the background. Star, Star yes. Wars music. That's what I did. I get lit on that. It dawned, it dawned on me. I'm like, you know what, if you're reading your Bible, and it doesn't necessarily have to be Star Wars, but if you're reading your Bible and you're proverbially not hearing the soundtrack in your head, you're probably mm -hmm. not reading your Bible right. Mm -hmm. I know people are, gonna, people are probably going to take that way out of context, but um, mm -hmm. we're in the midst of, of a cosmic struggle. Yeah. You know, this, this is the real Star Wars. You know, mm -hmm. this is totally. the real Lord of the Rings. That, you know, yep. what you know, take your, take your heroic story, you know, your epic yeah. saga, whatever analogy you want to use, you're in mm -hmm. the middle of one. Yeah. I think that that's, that's been purposefully erased or not erased, but it's been sanitized and yeah. so much, so mm -hmm. much education in the church, uh, over the last, you know, 20, 25 years, um, that, you know, it's no wonder that people are, are, are falling away from the church and in, in droves is because they've been given drivel theology. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In place of, of uh, you know, accurate, accurate doctrinal grounding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And, it, and to realize that, that, you know, in accepting Christ, you're one of the restored sons of God. Like that, that was your position before you were even born. Mm -hmm. um, that it's not hyperbole when, when the new Testament says, do you not know you'll be, you will sit in judgment of angels. You know, that's not totally exotic. Yeah. Um, there's a reason for that is because we're part of the divine council. Yeah. Um, and understanding that, you know, there. Uh, although in, in ages past, you know, it may not like I think about my grandparents and my great aunt and uncle who had a tremendous impact on me. Voracious readers of the Bible, my aunt read a lot of prophecy, you know, stuff, Hal Lindsey and, and stuff like mm -hmm. that back in the, um, and in most cases, their biblical in their biblical education, it wasn't overtly articulated this divine counsel stuff wasn't overtly articulated but they somehow knew it because of mm. their familiarity with the scripture even in yeah. translation and they walk and, and in their walk 
you know, they, they walk so closely with the Lord and there are lessons to be taken from that. Yeah. Uh, you know, crack your Bible open and read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, you know, spend more than a five minute. Devo- I mean, five minute devotionals are fine. I, I, I do them too, but set aside time to really dig into the scripture, do yourself a favor and get familiar with the context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and explore it. This stuff will pop to life for you. And you'll, you'll realize that, that you've got a truncated version of what your life as a believer is supposed to be like. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's supposed to be an epic story. That's a good message to the listeners too. It's like, Flirt with this idea of coming into agreement with how epic it really is. Mm-hmm. Like just, just like kind of meditate on that for a little bit. Like it really is this epic story. This conquest. Well, how, did, mm-hmm. how, did we, how did I start to start this conversation with Tolkien's inspiration mm-hmm. or the Nazgul? Yeah. He's driving that from the Rephaim in the old Testament. Yeah. And if you, you read stuff like the Silmarillion. That, that's a hundred percent divine mm-hmm. counsel. Inspired. Yeah. The the names have just been changed. It's all the same players. It's Yahweh. Yeah. It's, it's, the council. it's you know, Morgoth is Satan. Uh, yep. Everything. Every creation is is sung into being yeah. by this angelic bar. Um You know. Yeah. He uses the facade of. Uh, you know, or, the, or rather, the the artifice of you know Germanic and Celtic mythology, mm-hmm. you know, is kind of the overlay, but it's straight out of Divine Council theology uh, yeah. from the beginning to the end. Yeah, it's epic. So, it's all coming from yeah, reality. It's more real. Yeah. So, and, yeah, it's good. The you know, the Bible sets all that you know in real space and time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. It should be, right? It is. It is. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. Man, this is again one of my favorite episodes. Yes. Good. <laughs> I love Boy. everything we get into. Yeah. But that's cool. And there's a reason those stories, there's a reason Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, in addition to the reality of it and what it's based off of, there's a reason those stories light us up. Mm-hmm. It, it touches something, I think, in everybody. Mm-hmm. Deep down, even if you don't know it, it's like, oh, yeah. It's epic. Luke Skywalker, Darth, the yeah. redemption. It's all there. Yeah. That's yeah. good. Well, and I mean, the, the you know, not that I ever agreed with Joseph Campbell theologically, sure. but he wrote a book called Here with a Thousand Faces. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's something in, in which he compared that the hero's journey that you read in a lot of mythologies. And certainly you read it in the Bible again and again, uh, that there's something innately human about that, that we need that. We yeah. He compared it to what, taking the sort of anthropological tack, it compared it to rites of passage, yeah. you know, that we go through during the course of our life. Hmm. Um, and I think that that's, I, I think he, I, as a, as a mythologist and somebody who was not particularly religious himself, it was an interesting piece of analysis, but I think yeah. that those, are, those are innate 
urges and needs that God gave to us. Yeah. Um, that we need to sort of live out in our life in, in order to, you know, fulfill our purpose. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, G- there's no better example of the hero's journey than Jesus. Yeah. None. That's right. We had a, uh, we had a group. This was probably a couple of years ago. We had a, I think it was the unseen realm. I think we did a Bible, like a study our, uh, mm-hmm. at our church, Tyler house of faith. And in the, in the whole, in the study, one of one guy said, we were talking about the kind of the bipolar God thing, like God, God, father, God's Santa Claus, white beard up here, sending his son down there. Like I'll send him down there to pay for them and to get, you know, whipped and killed and all that stuff. This guy in the group said something along the effects of how shitty is that? He's going to send his kid down there. He says, I'm the one I'm going to go down there and I'm going to go down there for my son and I'm going to handle it. And we're like, that's the Holy spirit. Mm -hmm. That's him. That's Jesus right there. I'm going to go save my kids. You know, that heroism, which is what he did to come Mm -hmm. down here as one of us and to take it upon himself, to reconcile us to himself. But that's in all of us. I think it's there. Mm -hmm. That heroism is Jesus. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. But it's hilarious. You mentioned (laughs) empire strikes back. We're doing this challenge where you have to read 10 pages of now it's not super clear. It says nonfiction. Yeah. But in my opinion, I think some fiction is more nonfiction than nonfiction. (laughs) I think it's more real. And I'm reading Return of the Jedi, the novelization. Okay. Which tells you the interesting thing. It tells you some of Darth Vader's facial expressions behind his mask. It tells you what Mm -hmm. the characters are thinking in certain moments. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like watching the movie on another level. So, (laughs) yeah. Star Wars. And soundtracks. That's what I listen to. I'm on a, I'm on a, I'll go synth wave, classical music, heavy metal, and then I'll do movie scores. Yep. That's pretty much my rotation. That's it. And here's <laughs> Are y'all the same person? Here's a good movie score that I, it, it fell off, but I listened to it recently and it's like, oh, that's one of the best. Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. Uh-huh. That soundtrack. Now, is that a, is that Hans Zimmer? It's Hans Zimmer. Yeah. yeah. It is incredible. Do we just become best friends? Anyways, that's good music. That's <laughs> good music. It's seasons, but it always is usually those categories. Uh-huh. Right. But same. Well. Thank you, Judd. Yeah. My always pleasure. appreciate it. Let's do a Christmas episode. Can we? Okay. Smash on yeah. some Christmas a little bit. Yeah. I think that'd be that's fun cool. if you're down for it. Yeah. Bring us all people, the goods about it. If oh. people are interested, I, I have a little book called 12 Days of Christmas Bible Study. Um, do you really have little little nuggets of, of christmas history lessons in them oh, oh i love that <laughs> i didn't know that i didn't know you had that I'm, one i'm about to update update it so that it'll be available and i think right now i've just got it in ebook form um, okay i'm gonna make it available for hard copy for christmas perfect Day. that's awesome that is awesome hey actually can we do a whole holiday deal where you could talk about easter yeah, we could just like we could run through all the holidays, all of them. Goodness, we could call it the holiday episode. I wanted to say this too, note notably, 
I'm a pretty busy person. And so if, if, if I do something, it's usually cause I'm inspired to, uh-huh. I actually wrote a treatment, not a full thing, but I wrote a synopsis character setting for this little movie idea that we talked about last time, the stranger things kind uh-huh. of Christian Nephilim backdrop to it. I actually wrote, I think I have like two or three pages of notes. So you, you've done some work since we last talked. Man. I did. And that's something I, you know, I have ideas all day, but when I put feet to something, I'm usually like inspired to do it because I'm pretty, mm-hmm. pretty busy. Yeah. I'll send it to you. Just check it out. And then you could say, you know, I'm a, I'm an honesty kind of person. So if it's not good, say James, this good job, terrible. but this sucks. And I, I'm like, <laughs> I, I take it. I don't believe in getting offended. So. If I, yeah. if I get in there and I'm like, this is kind of good. Maybe they'll appreciate it. I'll just send it over there. If anything, right. it might be a fun little, oh, that could be something. A thought experiment, at least. A thought experiment. Yeah. If anything. Anyways. Isn't that called a mind, uh, a mind gym? I guess. I guess you know, so. a place where you go and you exercise your mind. Yeah. Memory palace. <laughs> oh, a good deal. Well, thanks again, Dr. Chud. I so appreciate you. A pleasure. Always a lot of fun. If you enjoyed this episode of the Ancient Way podcast, drop us a like, share with your friends, share with your family. And if you'd like to support us and what we are doing, and you would like to uh, play a direct role in our growth and things that we do in the future. We have a donation spot at the bottom of our show notes. So you can click on that, give however much you want. Uh, We appreciate absolutely everything. We appreciate our listeners um, and everybody that's already come alongside and encouraged us and even everybody that's been on our show. So Mm -hmm. thanks guys.